This is a recording of Benjamin Perzicki at the Sunday, March 27, 2016 meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the BCHA or its board of directors. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca, follow us on Facebook or Twitter, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist podcast on Stitcher or iTunes. say thanks for having me. Um, I, uh, I guess by way of background, um, I, yeah, I'm an anthropologist, I have a PhD in anthropology. I sort of study the evolutionary and cognitive uh, sciences of religion. Uh, as a sort of a personal note for, I guess, what motivates me, um, I stopped going to church when I was about seven. Um, Thankfully, I had parents who were understanding because they said, well, why aren't you dressed for church? And I said, because it doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> and my dad was like, all right, you can stay home with your mom. So, nice. Nice. Um, and then we moved to the, uh, the countryside in southwest Wisconsin, and uh, part of my parents' strategy of um, sort of introducing ourselves to the community was going to a local church. So I went one time, and I did exactly the same thing the next time. It doesn't make any sense to me. All right, stay home with your mom. And staying home with my mom actually turned into chores, which I started wondering whether or not that be church. Um, so that all said, uh, my, my personal motivations for, for studying religion is it, it is fascinating. Why on earth would it be the case that people could commit time, resources, all sorts of things to something that they don't have substantive evidence for. Um, and that was always the big mystery to me. Um, and as I, you know, uh, I was interested in cross-cultural research, so I started learning quite a bit about religion cross-culturally and realized that a lot of my preconceptions about religion stem from my own uh, confusion over Christianity in particular. Um, so by way of sort of, sort of catching us hopefully up to speed, um, sort of talk a little bit about some points, and then we'll uh, get to the main guts of the talk. A lot of times, um, uh, uh, I give talks fairly frequently, and a lot of the similar sort of concerns pop up, so I want to sort of talk about those. And this is really like a cross-cultural sense of religion in mind, as opposed to something that might be informed by uh, the Abrahamic tradition. Um, in terms of how we're going to go about uh, sort of framing the talk, I'll do that first, I guess. Um, a lot of contemporary research in the evolutionary and cognitive sciences of religion um, are the, the bulk of the, the big arguments these days are whether or not uh, religion is adaptive. So does it confer fitness benefits for individuals? Does it increase the chances that they uh, survive and reproduce? Um, is it maladaptive? Is it something that decreases the chances that people um, uh, survive and reproduce? Um, is it just a byproduct of the way we've evolved? Is it just some sort of strange thing that kind of like a meme-like thing that attaches itself to our heads um, and our behaviors, and we're just sort of compelled to do it? Um, but it really has no uh, benefits um, or consequences. It's just something that's there. Sort of, uh, I think Steven Pinker calls it cognitive cheesecake. It's something we're attracted to. It's really got no consequences. 
Um, is it just something we learn? Is it just because we're, we're raised to think this and it's just information in our heads? Um, or is it an essential part of the way our minds work? Um, are there the, the sort of, do we have biological foundations for religious thought and practice? Um, the way I tend to examine things is not necessarily something I endorse, um, but I'm leaning towards endorsing this view, but I, as a scientist, I want to test this. Because honestly, personally, I got into this research, I'm like, I don't want religion to convert benefits for people. Um, I want it to be effectively eradicated. That's my personal goal. Um, but when I find when I find evidence contrary, that it drives me nuts. Um, but you know, I, I want to understand it. See, it is it, uh, a true scholar, maybe that's that's generous. But um, uh, it is sort of you know, you want to be a masochist to be a good scientist, um, and fits the bill. Um, so generally, the sort of sort of take-home message I hope to leave you with um, is that features of religious traditions do, in fact, function as responses to uh, fitness-reducing uh, factors in the environment and our social lives. And I'll talk about some of those today. Um, give a sort of corollary of that uh, take-home message is that if that's the case, then we should see religions changing through time in order to counter particular fitness-relevant um, uh, factors in our uh, social and ecological or environmental conditions. So given that said, sort of jumped the gun earlier, um, is that what I'm talking about when I talk about religion, and a lot of, a lot of uh, researchers talk about when they talk about religion, is it's not so much a worldview aspect of religion, although that's an important part, but the guts of what we call religion is simply ritual behavior performed with appeals to supernatural beings. Gods, ghosts, goblins, so on and so forth. Very, very straightforward and simple. But given that, I mean, that's a, a sort of a universal, sort of crude but working definition of it. Um, but given that, I want to make sure that uh, uh, you understand that I'm not talking about religion as uh, sort of centrally about faith or truth. That's a very sort of Islamo-Christocentric sort of view about the way religion works. So a lot of times I do field work um, in Siberia. I ask people like, okay, you're doing these rituals. They're devoted to these spirits. Do you believe that the spirits are out there? And they're like, that's what my, our ancestors did. Like, no, okay, but do you believe that they're out there? Uh, kind of reluctant to commit to that idea. Um, so a lot of traditions are really about practice uh, as well. Uh, so that's an important component. Um, the religion isn't always about groupness or affiliation as well. Um, so in a lot of traditions, there, there are no alternatives. It's not like being a member of a religious group. Um, so that's important to, uh, to, to acknowledge as well. Um, another important thing that it constantly gets uh, uh, argued on the secular by secularists and religion uh, religionists as well uh, is that religion is somehow inherently about morality. Now that's uh, whatever that means, of course, um, but it's, it's it's there's something intrinsic or it's explicitly about uh, how we ought to be, be be behaving toward other people, and that's a, a common misconception. Um, again, I'll talk about that a little bit as well. And uh, sort of related to the second group, uh, religion isn't always about conversion. It's not like you're, you can convert to uh, uh, Judaism um, in most uh, uh, Judaic traditions, although, of course, there's reform groups and so on. But in, in Buddhism, for instance, there's not necessarily a conversion process on the ground. 
So given all that, let's sort of dig into the guts here. Um, another sort of issue that we, we have to be careful about is, is oversimplifying how we think and talk about religion. Um, so here's a common sort of folk anthropological or folk psychological view about religion is that we have these beliefs and they cause our behaviors. Now, we believe that God wants X and then we'll do some uh, particular behavior. Uh, so a good example of someone endorsing this view is Richard Dawkins. He's talking about the 2005 London bombers and he says, only religious faith is strong enough force to motivate such utter, utter madness and otherwise sane and decent people. That's a common, he's got a causal argument there, it's a causal claim. They have these beliefs, they're so committed to these beliefs that they're willing to blow themselves up for this belief. Um, and, but we know all the time that a lot of times our behaviors actually help us rationalize our beliefs. We engage in a particular behavior, we might see some outcome just by virtue of we have difficult time uh, with logic, and it reaffirms our beliefs. So a lot of times people engage in ritual practices and you say, well, why do you do this? Well, because I believe in it. It's not necessarily that they're motivated by beliefs, it's just that the concepts that they know they're supposed to appeal to are reinforced by the fact they're engaging in it. So a lot of, I mean, we, we rationalize behavior all the time. I had to rationalize getting up this morning. <laughs> but I did it because I'm a secular humanist. I wanted to do it for you. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, you know, that's, that's how we were really good at rationalizing our behavior. Um, I just made that up. So. Um, but given that, we, we, we know that social life is very complicated as well. I mean, if you're a social scientist, you know how utterly messy um, analyzing uh, human behavior is. But all these factors sort of feed into our communities as well. Communities reinforce our beliefs. We know all sorts of uh, pressure to conform uh, uh, exists. Um, and uh, community sort of uh, curbs uh, sort of aspects of our behavior, but also boosts behavior. Uh, this is all fairly you know, intuitive, uh, but we get lost, um, these things get lost when we make simplistic arguments as, as Dawkins and others have. Uh, but also how our communities work with other outgroups or with other groups and our, national, our natural environments uh, sort of work all together. It's a very huge mess. And as social scientists, we try to piecemeal these relationships piece by piece, trying to get a sensible, intelligible big picture, especially when we see awful behavior like this. It's not easy enough to just say, well, they are blowing themselves up because they have crazy beliefs. Well, all sorts of people have crazy beliefs. Why aren't they blowing themselves up? I have crazy beliefs, and I'm not. Uh, so the question is, uh, we have to understand the big picture. Um, so if we look at the actual social science of the history and motivational factors behind violence, uh, Luke Matthews did a great study, um, and his conclusion based on the evidence was that violence amongst uh, Anabaptists was a result of congregationally inherited factors and not due to different beliefs or rituals. Namely, they're engaging and endorsing violent behavior by virtue of the fact that they're living in a social and natural environment where they're up against someone who's perpetually against them. So these are the kinds of things we have to come to terms with. Um, so this is the empirical evidence. This is a moralistic type of argument. I'm much more interested in the empirical evidence in order to get rid of these kinds of behaviors. Given that, let's investigate this question of the adaptiveness of religious behavior. So rituals somehow might confer uh, adaptive benefits for individuals. 
So ritual is a fairly uh, complicated practice. I'm not going to bother going into definitions and all, but there's a problem inherent in human sociality and from an evolutionary perspective is that we need each other to survive as individuals. Our genes need cooperative relationships in order to increase the likelihood that we have offspring. It's biological imperative. And as a social species, we have all sorts of uh, complications to maintaining that those relationships. And uh, sort of anthropological thought since at least the 1950s um, had, uh, continually uh, finds evidence for this idea that ritual behavior is communicative. And what it com uh, communicates to other people is commitment to, obviously, the deities that they're designed for, devoted to. People talk about, well, we're engaging in this behavior because God wants us to, or the Spirit wants us to. But it also conveys to other uh, participants your commitment to them. So think, I, I like to use this example. I'm a fan of heavy metal music, and there's a famous sort of image of a fan. If you guys know this band Slayer, this heavy metal band Slayer. Someone actually took a razor blade and carved the logo of the band Slayer into their chest, and there's all these great pictures. Now, now that's commitment, right? That person is committed to, pardon? Or should be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a person should be committed. The band's great. Um, but that's, that, that conveys commitment. Coming here every Sunday to talk about secular issues, that's a way to convey commitment to each other. It's not religious um, by the definition, but it is a way to communicate. You could be doing other things, of course. Um, so it, rituals are like a way to communicate commitment. Now what's important is that there are costs involved in rituals, whether it's just spending time, but also you, you know, engaging in the risk of cutting yourself, all sorts of rituals all, all over the place where people ritualistically extract teeth while well, the gods want us to do that. Why do they want you to do that? Well, people know that you're committed to the group and a member of the group because you're missing ritually extracted teeth. You're really committed by doing that. So the empirical evidence suggests that what these kinds of rituals do is it communicates trustworthiness. I'm willing, I mean, I'm so committed to this that I'm willing to engage in this behavior and I will be perceived as more trustworthy by virtue of that, and people can engage in those cooperative relationships more effectively because they know who to trust. So from a biological perspective, what these rituals do is it reliably communicates trustworthiness to people. So in some of my own field work um, in, in the Tuba Republic, I'll talk about them a little bit, is that par participation does indeed, in rituals, does indeed uh, convey trustworthiness to the point where you hear, here's the most religious individual participants, watch this individual, knows a bit, a bit about their lives. Sort of interesting how I ask them questions like, how willing are you to uh, allow this person to babysit your children? And they were rated as more trustworthy with someone's own progeny just by virtue of the fact that they're engaging in rituals more often. That's remarkable. I mean, think about biological risk there. Yep, some anonymous guy out there, I'm going to give my kids to him. Um, much more likely... Uh, than the non-religious or those who uh, re reject uh, the ritual practices. Another interesting study where um, uh, Sosas et al. found that the more taxing or the more costly rituals there are, um, uh, the more frequently people engage in warfare. Now, we can immediately think of this as a causal argument, like people are engaging in these totally taxing rituals, they're, they're pulling out their teeth, they're getting circumcised and so forth, that they're suddenly going to 
rush into war. That's not the argument. The argument is, is that given the frequency of warfare that people have to engage in all the time, there's much more temptation to be like, forget this, I'm not engaging, I'm not fighting your battle for you, and splitting, right? So you need a reliable way to curb that temptation. And what way to what better way to do things like scarification, tooth extraction, because that's a really reliable way of saying, I'm committed to you and I'm committed to the group. So we find that the more frequently warfare exists in societies, the more taxing their rituals. I think of like the, the Urukai or whatever in Lord of the Rings, where they're like slapping each other on the chests and putting metal in their skin and all of this. Really reliable way of conveying. Uh, that you're trustworthy and you're not going to defect on your social obligations. Another interesting thing, this is uh, immediately relevant to any sort of secular organizations, is that compared to secular organizations here, this light gray, these light gray bars, the more costly rituals that uh, groups have, the black ones are religious, the gray ones are secular, the costlier these rituals are, the longer these communes, these religious organizations and secular organizations survive. And compared to the religious organizations, given these frequent, frequently costly rituals that people engage in, these groups last a lot longer through time. So that's, that's fairly remarkable that, again, this conveyance of commitment through ritual practices builds trust within communities so much to the point where, over generations, these groups are lasting longer. So given this, um, so I, I, I participated in some of this research, uh, I looked at these results, and it's kind of like, well, if that's the case, again, then we ought to see ritual altering cross-culturally and through time in order to counter these kinds of new conditions. As new conditions develop, then we'll see rituals changing. And the sort of variables of interest here is like the frequency of ritual, the timing of ritual, and where rituals take place. These things ought to change given new conditions. So take a classic case of a Balinese religion. So off of the coast of northwest Australia, Micronesia, see uh, Bali is a, a really interesting case. So here's where it's located. Now, oftentimes, if let's say we just all take a plane over to Bali, we drop out and land during one of these wonderful rituals, you see people in these holding tanks of water participating in fairly costly, you know, that to gather all of these uh, ritual accoutrements. They're engaging in a ritual devoted to the water goddess in this, in this pool. Now, any of us would drop down there like, you're worshiping water, you're worshiping the goddess of the water, how, how kind of quaint. Um, yes, water's important and so on and so forth. Um, what's fairly remarkable is that once you get, a, you can talk to people about it and you're like, why are you doing this? Well, the water goddess likes us to do this. It's really important that to the water goddess that we participate in these rituals, uh, so on. There's lots of pageantry, and it's quite lovely in these ancient temples. Now, in and of itself, again, causally, you can say, well, the beliefs cause their behavior. They believe that this water goddess wants, us to do, wants them to do this, and they engage in the ritual behavior. Let's look at a little broader view. Where these temples are, and these pools are, here's a temple right here, you look at the landscape, it's a remarkable feat of human engineering, these terraced rice paddies you see up there. And you can see how, it's not in this illustration, but water comes down from the mountain and is held in these pools 
over a long period of time. And then they engage in these rituals because the goddess wants you to appreciate the water. And then by virtue of the goddess's will, you end up releasing the water and it continues to go down the hill. Again, pretty interesting what's going on here. Um, and Stephen Lansing, you've got to give the guy credit for devoting his entire uh, scientific life to understanding how this process works. You look at even a broader perspective is that at the top of these mountains, they have these, these are the little temples right here, sort of weirdly placed at every sort of important juncture where water is rerouted and distributed. And they found that the water is supernaturally sanctioned to be held for a longer period of time. And what they find is that when you have a structural system like this where water's up here and then released and then it's held down there and then it's redistributed throughout the terraces and you go down the mountain and you have this long ritual cycle of holding water and it turns out that the water by the time it gets to the bottom of the hill is so rich in nutrients by comparison it curbs pests, you get a higher rice yield, you get more water for more people and you have this entire remarkable complex system where people down here don't even know the people at the top of the hill, at the top of the mountain. And by comparison, again, you see um, in cases where they don't have this uh, ritual system, a lot of people fighting over resources or access to the water for the rice paddies. Uh, during the uh, 70s and 80s, when all the high-yield genetic varieties of rice came in, a lot of the, the, call it the Green Revolution came in and started planting, said, no, 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 no don't, don't worry about this hocus-pocus putting these high yield genetically modified rice. The rice soaked up all the water, these the systems sort of broke down and then entire terraces were wiped out by virtue of pest increases, um, commons problems of people fighting over resources and so on and so forth. So the question is like, well, here's a remarkable system where you have all sorts of individual agents interacting in a cooperative way that yields benefits, that increases the likelihood that uh, they reproduce and survive Here's an adaptive argument right here, but they're fairly ignorant about the entire system as individuals, but it works out well because there's all sorts of communication going on along, along the line there. Remarkably complex system. People don't even understand this until scientists uh, come in and actually model it and collect data. So here's another example, the Mardu in the western desert of Australia, fairly remarkable system where on the ground, you often see these controlled fires, um, and you ask them, well, why are you doing this? Well, our ancestor spirits say that if we don't do this, we're, we're, we're wiped out. We're going to die. So they have these ritualized, controlled uh, field burning uh, expeditions where you have the elders sort of guiding things along and people participating uh, in fire burning. And so the logical question is like, okay, why would a spirit care about burning fields? It doesn't make much sense. Well, so some ecologists came in there and they said, well, co let's compare these, this land through time to lands that are sort of set ablaze accidentally because of lightning storms and then places that there's no, like, very little fire um, uh, at all. And what they found was that, this should be fairly intuitive around the Pacific Northwest, is that when you clear burn this area, what that does is it increases biodiversity. You get a lot of seeds that get spread, and then you get a lot of small mammals that eat those seeds, and a lot of uh, rodents. And then they find that more rodents means more monitor lizards. Well, guess who eats the monitor lizards? The mardu. Mm -hmm. So they found that there are caloric increases in contexts where 
you're supernaturally, or you're claiming that some supernatural being out there wants you to ritualistically burn this area that just so happens to increase the populations of lizards that you eat. Remarkable. Why does it have to be religion? That's effectively the question that we'll um, end up on if I don't completely run out of time. So in my own field site, I'll talk a bit more. You'll learn a little bit more about uh, Tuva Republic than you've ever known before uh, today. So my field site is a Tuva Republic, just south, southern Siberia right here, just north of western Mongolia. For you uh, uh, physics uh, geeks out there, this is the very Tuva that Richard Feynman was interested in. Um, in fact, I, I read about Richard Feynman's sort of obsession with Tuva, and I was like, ah, I'll go there for field work, um, sort of as a joke. But then I, I realized that it was the perfect place for the questions I was asking. Is that throat singers? Yes, exactly. Yeah, throat singers. Um, so can anyone do that as a performance? Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, just to give you a, a sort of a general sense of, uh, of, of Tuva's economy, uh, post-Soviet um, Russian Republic, um, they're ethnically inter-Asian, or um, uh, they would yell at me for saying Mongolic, um, but they're Altaian, um, so a different sort of ethnic group than Mongolians, but you know, uh, they're, they're phenotypically inter-Asian. Um, they've got an uh, urban environment with full market integration, the capital city of Kazil. Uh, in the northeast, there are reindeer riding and herding uh, folks who live in uh, bark teepees, there are camel herders in the south, and there where I spent most of my time, um, the lovely Taiga, forested mountains of western Tuva, where folks are herders of sheep, goats, yaks, uh, and occasionally cattle. Uh, one sort of fun story is I was helping a family herd their entire uh, herd uh, through the mountains during uh, early spring in southern Siberia, and so we had the entire family's wealth um, I was in charge of an entire family's wealth. That was pressure. And so we're walking through the mountains, and the yak that was in the herd was just like hopping on the peaks, the high peaks. It was remarkable. And then the goats and sheep were kind of making their, minding their own business, walking around in a line. And then there's the one cow in their herd that was like, I'm not adapted for this environment. <laughs> and again, the yak was just like in, in hog heaven, like just watching us, sort of, you idiots. And then... By the end of the excursion, by the end of the day, we had to like literally roll the cow down the mountain because it was so <laughs> exhausted. Um, it's like maybe she'd be milking that yak a little bit more. Um, yeah, that was fun. So um, yeah, that's where I work. Um, and there, I guess uh, the the religious practices generally are there. Everyone in the city, at least, uh, you say, well, what religion are you? They'll be like, well, I'm Buddhist. Um, and, but it's uh, really closely intertwined with the local sort of shamanic uh, ancestor spirit uh, traditions there. And I focus mostly on uh, the traditional religion there. Because um, here it's sort of an interesting case where it's like you don't have religious communities. You have herders who live in yurts over vast expanses of, of space, and they get together maybe once or twice a year for their big, big rituals. Uh, but they do engage in uh, uh, short-term uh, rituals. And shamans are involved, and sometimes Buddhist lamas come out and participate. Uh, it's pretty neat. Um, so in all this case where this is exactly where I'd say, like, do you believe the spirits are out there? And they're like, quite often. Uh, but they, they nevertheless participate. So let's get a sense of their, their context. Again, I mentioned that they're herders. So the way this works um, is that herding 
it has its own set of sort of a, a challenges of, uh, of uh, you know, social uh, adaptation. So you think about it uh, like pastoralist groups, you know, you, you live in uh, yurts, buy water supplies. Part of the thing that your wealth uh, depends upon is access to grazing land for your livestock, right? And so you have these huge, uh, vast expanses of land, and people are effectively competing over access to livestock, because the more grass you have access to, the more sheep you end up having, right? Fairly, fairly straightforward. Um, and as we know, in a lot of herding populations, um, there's lots of conflict, like perpetual internecine warfare, because people are always competing over access to the land that gives them, uh, gives their, uh, uh, their herds uh, bounty. So one of the adaptive challenges to herding is just how to deal with this kind of commons problem uh, and, and conflict, particularly in a mountainous area. Weirdly enough, uh, Tuvan rituals are on, located on these territorial borders, on travel routes, and in front of valuable resources uh, like a natural spring right here. So these little flags here represent um, a sort of ritual offerings to these spirits. And the way these rituals often work is this, is that if, let's say, I'm, at, I'm in this camp and I'm traveling to take my livestock, let's say, over here, what I'll do is I'll often go up through the mountain, place a ritual offering, perform a little ritual devoted to the local spirit on this territorial border, and then go on my merry way. And what the rituals often consist of, at least traditionally, is uh, sort of a, spe a specifically colored form of silk that is indicative of your clan. Now that's remarkable because if you think about it, if you're these people and you do not want these people in your territory because their livestock are eating your grass, and you go up there and you see that someone has placed a ritual offering, you're like, oh, I know who's here. That's different from what it was uh, a couple weeks ago. So you know that people, you kind of know where people might have been going, or at least where they were, by virtue of their offering. Now if you find out later, of course, that people are over here, and they didn't participate in a ritual offering, I would ask people this all the time, and they said, well, that doesn't really seem to happen. Or, well, their family over there, that, that doesn't matter. Um, so it's sort of an interesting bias there. But also a sort of compelling thing, too, is that and this happened a couple times to me where if I'm over here in this yurt camp and the, the river water is dirty because uh, there were rains in the mountain or there's snow melt or something and you don't want to drink that water, you make the trek over to your neighbor's land, they have a natural spring so it's a constant source of fresh water, you perform your ritual here, you go to the neighbor's land, and what you do is you go by the ritual spring, you've got lots of milk jugs that you're going to fill up with water, and before you do that, you bow your head to the local spirit of this natural spring. You put some money on there, you put some tobacco on there, you tie a piece of silk onto the local area where these spirits are located. You pay your respects, and as you do this, the people of these yurts just stand out there and outside of their yurts and are like, watch it. They don't mess with you. Okay. And then when you're done, as soon as you're done, they come down and they start talking with you and being social, and they invite you in for you know, coffee and tea and maybe some uh, dumplings and so on. And then, But they will leave you alone, and the first thing you do when you get there is you make it known that you are respecting that local spirit, and again, respecting the landlords of that territory. So very communicative uh, in this case. 
Um, so what's interesting is that since we know that these rituals promote trust, this might be one way of solving this commons problem, is that if it's the case that as a pastoralist or herder, you're constantly vying for territory, if you have a god on the border of that territory, you might actually respect that territory a bit more if you know that your luck might change if you don't participate in this ritual. And guess what happens seasonally when all the sheep are, are, are breeding and it's really tough times, people all get together on this mountaintop and they talk about let's have a good you know, fertile year for our livestock and so on and so forth. In my experience, no one ever explicitly said, now this is on a territorial border and this ritual means that you're going to respect that. No, no, no. You say, the local spirit lord of this territory wants us to you know, have harmonious lives and so on and so forth. So it's fairly remarkable that it might be the case that if rituals promote trust and a general form of trust, that if you're going to participate in this ritual up here, that your neighbors might perceive you as more or less likely to encroach on your territory. So that's effectively what I've been examining uh, in Tuba. How do beliefs play a role in this? This is a very practice-based tradition. Uh, again, I mentioned that some people are just like, you know what, this is what our ancestors do, and it works, and it, and it makes sense, and I'll often tell you sometimes they get bad luck, and they're like, ah, oh, yeah, I didn't pay, I didn't give enough money to the spirit, uh, so on and so forth. So again, these rationalizations start popping up, and they're, they're quite effective. Well, let's actually examine beliefs. So to talk about the importance of beliefs, I don't want to deny the importance of beliefs in any sort of sensible uh, explanation of why we're a religious species. Um, but there are some sort of compelling research that suggests that it depends on the kinds of beliefs that people endorse. So part of my research uh, program is explicit or exclusively devoted to making sense of how we make sense of God's minds. And why we should care about God's minds is sort of compelling. Um, is that, for, oops, for one, when people appeal to gods, when people say, you know, God wants this, or God knows this, or God feels this way, and so on, what they're doing is, I mean, they might be motivated by these behaviors, they might be trying to manipulate you, not in a necessarily malicious way, but I actually was, when I used to smoke, I was standing outside once, and some guy came past me, he's like, God knows that you're smoking. Like, yeah, but he doesn't care. <laughs> Beat that, you know. Um, but, um, but, but people make these appeals in order to influence your behavior. Um, and, and we see that uh, uh, all the time. So in my view is that if people have these sort of kinds of things that they always appeal to God's minds about, um, then they, they might actually indicate their effects um, and, and how people associate uh, God's concerns with um, other aspects of uh, social organization. Uh, what I've come to sort of think, uh, God's really are like an organizational strategy, a rhetorical strategy. Now, obviously religious folks might think that this is uh, heretical and sure, fine, it is, okay. Um, and secularists might think that that's uh, problematic. Uh, particularly with the view if it's just sort of a maladaptive byproduct of the way our, our minds work. But they are compelling. I mean, even for us uh, secularists or atheists, when people make appeals to gods, it, it, at least with me, it, it gets my, my, my goat. It's like, well, how, how are you, how do you know? Damn it. Um, and then, I, you know, I think about it, I'm like, why, why do I care, really? <laughs> why do I really care? 
Um, so it, it does, they, they do affect us. Um, and I'll talk a bit more about why. Um, but a lot of this was inspired by a cognitive researcher um, named Pascal Boyer, who sort of made the observation. He's like, you know, yes, gods around the world sort of have specific details. You know, there's Ganesh with the elephant face, and, you know, there's uh, all sorts of other qualities that we attribute to the gods. Um, but really, we talk about God's concerns. We talk about what they know, what they care about, what they're going to do to you, because they have these particular qualities. Um, so I'll sort of examine this a bit further. Um, and one of the things um, in, the, in the evolutionary literature uh, is this concept of supernatural punishment. Um, so gods punish us for various things. Sometimes they're sort of hands-off, like in the, in the Tuvan case, the gods there don't actively punish people for not performing the rituals. But if you don't do it, then your luck might change, which is just as spooky um, as, as a god um, uh, punishing you. Uh, but supernatural punishment, if you think about it, it's, it's, it's psychologically salient. Again, God knows you're smoking. And it's, well, you know, he doesn't care. But even still, like, if I think about, you know, when, when I grew up and my, my mom, like, if my brothers and I were arguing or something, and my mom was like, you know, what would your grandfather think? And it worked. It worked. It was never like... Oh, he's dead. Um, it worked, even though I didn't necessarily believe it. It was psychologically salient. Um, and another thing is that when it comes down to what you think about it, is that supernatural punishment, saying that you're going to get punished for a particular behavior, is ecologically inexpensive by virtue of that salience. Meaning, like in the case where Tubans, you've, you've got herding territories and all of this stuff, it's so much cheaper to say, this deity is involved in the respect of the territory, and your luck might get affected, you might, your car might blow up, you might lose a relative by virtue of not participating in this ritual. That's a lot cheaper, and again, it's more effective than building up a huge fence. I'm American, so like fences and borders are really important. <laughs> I will not apologize for that asshole. Anyway. Um, <laughs> So, given the literature, and I, I, I just point this out, use all these citations just to show off like how many people are focused on this concept, is that constant uh, research, uh, perpetual research in, in my field, is, has this focus on moralistic, omniscient, high gods. Um, moralistic means that they're concerned with human morality, whatever that means. Omniscient, of course, means that they know everything. And the supernatural punishment component is that they, they punish you for moral transgressions, right? And so a lot of the research uh, over the past few decades has found that these kinds of moralistic high gods are typically associated with social complexity. So like, high, like large complex societies as opposed to small scale like foraging societies where communities are only maybe 50 to 100. And the reason for this, from an evolutionary perspective, or, or so the argument goes, is that in contexts like the one we're in, where we're interacting with all sorts of anonymous people all the time, it's much more, from a biological perspective, much more tempting to say, well, I can get mine, and this person will never have any recourse. They might even be able to call some you know, secular institution like the cops to come after me. But it's really easy to get away with all sorts of stuff in socially complex societies. By virtue, I mean, by definition, it's, it's socially complex. 
So part of the evolutionary argument is that what these gods do, because they're psychologically salient, because they're cheap, they're certainly cheaper than the cops, um, but what they do is that uh, these gods sort of curb the temptation to defect on moral obligations in these heightened anonymous communities. Because you can say, God knows that you're smoking. He's like, oh yeah, he does, even though you might not know it. Or God knows that you're stealing. Well, people don't know it. I might be less likely to defect on uh, social obligations or social codes uh, if uh, someone appeals to these gods or you believe in this god or you're raised to believe in this kind of god. So it's an adaptive response to certain ecological conditions. Now this is a sort of interesting thing is that all this research is the same, I mean you, you can't get away with doing this kind of research without citing all these guys these days. Uh, but what's interesting is you look a little deeper into how they come to this conclusion is that they're looking at what's called the standard cross-cultural samples, like an anthropological database of cultures around the world. And what it's done is like a bunch of people took these old ethnographies written like in the 1800s where some traveler or anthropologist went out there and they're like, made observations about a certain society. And then they wrote these long qualitative books, like these travel journals effectively uh, by contemporary standards. And what people did was they coded all of these books for whether or not they had various qualities, okay? And this, 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 these methods are interesting because they define a high god as a spiritual being who's believed to have created all reality and the ultimate governor, even though his or her sole act was to create the other spirits who in turn might have participated in the natural world. And you get, oh, these gods get a one if the ethnographer mentioned that they are specifically supportive of human morality. Now, can anyone tell me what human morality is? Yeah, a little bit more complicated, but they get a one if the ethnographer mentioned that this god had anything to do with morality. They get a zero if the person who wrote the book didn't mention. So you see all sorts of questions pop up in terms of methodological adequacy. Um, so how do we actually determine what it means to be moral? Um, that's, that's a complicated question, of course. Uh, I have my own sort of spin on it. I'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, so that's one sort of problem with this. So again, the, the sort of skeptic in me is like, well, moralistic high gods, yeah, personally, they're kind of a pain in the butt, and I'm tired of hearing everyone talk about them all the time. And you look at the methods, you're like, well, that's inadequate. Let's actually examine this with living people. So I wanted to start doing that. So the Tuvan spirit masters, these lords of resources and regions, I don't bother with the... the too much about this. So this is a belief set. I ask people, just list as many things as you can think of that make these spirits happy. And systematically, people will say things like ritual, treating the environment nicely, praying, respecting them. You know, only, you know, maybe 10% say believing in them. And then a couple people say various things like, well, I don't know, or, you know, they don't like, or they, they, they like uh, rituals with fire, something like this. Uh, but, but systematically, people associate these uh, rich, uh, these these gods with uh, ritual and um, conserving uh, the natural resources. What are the things that make the spirits angry? Littering, well, littering in their place of uh, worship, so keeping a sacred place dirty. Not participating in ritual is 16% as opposed to that 45, so a real big drop off there. Drinking alcohol uh, or alcohol abuse. Uh, being too greedy with the God's resources, and so on. So it's easy to say, well, this is all moral stuff. Um, but I wanted a more systematic way of sort of saying, well, if we really want to make sense of what a moralistic God is, of course, to a non-moralistic God, 
is, then we can come up with better approaches to this. But just to give you a sense that, uh, of what these uh, spirits care about. So what I did was I said, well, how do Tuvins think of what morality, what morality is? So I asked them to do the same sort of task, but said, you know, tell me what it means to be a good person or a bad person. Maybe that's often sort of universal definition of morality. So I asked them the same questions, uh, asked them to sort of naturalistically list the kinds of things that make a good and bad person. Good people are hardworking, helpful, um, kind, modest, and so on. Uh, immoral people are untrustworthy, alcohol abusers, lazy, envious, greedy, and so on, cruel. The kinds of things that you would expect in a lot of places. And what I did was I just compared that and found that there's basically 14% overlap with, um, or actually, sorry, 8% overlap with their models of what it means to be a good and bad person and what their gods care about. So in this case, you say, well, it's not, you can't really say that these gods are moralistic, at least in a Tuvan sense. Um, so why this is important will, uh, will, will pop up in a little bit. So what's interesting is that, so I took these and I was like, well, wait, if these gods aren't even explicitly concerned with maintaining territorial borders, not interested in trustworthy people, they're not interested in greediness um, of you know, a social sense, uh, and so forth, it's like, well, if these gods are not moralistic, how on earth can you have a spirit that actually functions to get people to be more moral when they're not explicitly concerned with it? And so what I did was I took these samples of the people who explained all of this, and I found that, what it, I'm not going to explain this too, in, in too technical detail, but what I found that is that when you do talk about these spirits, it primes moral cognition for the Tubans. So you, they might never say that this spirit cares about how you treat other people, but it actually triggers their moral cognition. And you can say, well, does the God, this god care about killing people? And they'll go, oh, yeah, I, yeah, okay, <laughs> sure. Yeah, they're more, I mean, probabilistically, it's all uh, sats, but probabilistically, they're more inclined to say, well, sure. But the kind of cool thing is that this is completely moderated by space. So these, I asked them questions about, you know, does the god know or care if, uh, you know, I did something close close by, like a moral thing here. This is where the spirit's located, and the farther up you go on this axis is the farther away the behavior is from where that spirit is. So they care less about murdering someone in Moscow than murdering someone there. Of course, I did this, I compared it to uh, Christians in the United States, and the Christians are systematically moralistic in terms of, of their God. That's a very, obviously, explicitly moralistic God. So what this suggests is that, worry about it, uh, but what this suggests is that even though these gods not, might not be explicitly concerned with morality, and even though Tuvans might not talk to each other as though their gods care about morality, people might never, nevertheless get primed with moral cognition when they're thinking about their religions. In other words, they might actually end up being more moral if their moral cognition is triggered and guide their behavior, regardless of what their beliefs are. Um, so let's actually take a broader view and look around the world at some of sort of similar things. So uh, a colleague and I sort of looked at some of the ethnographic literature because all of the research has been focused on this, these moralistic high gods, these ones that care about morality. And very few studies have, shown, uh, have investigated these gods that might care about other stuff. 
So we uh, sort of went through uh, the anthropological record and basically came up with a few basic categories that these gods seem to care about. Um, and three basic categories is uh, gods around the world care about behaviors directed towards them. They care about behaviors directed towards nature. And they care about behaviors directed towards people. And then you always have to, when you do any kind of social science, have a junk pile because there's stuff that you're like, well, I don't even know how to make sense of that. Um, but just to give you a sense of, there's ritual devoted towards gods, religious stuff um, that's directed toward, towards gods. Things that gods care about toward nature are, you know, maintaining the environment, uh, food taboos, things uh, directed towards people are, of course, morality, etiquette, virtue, uh, drug abuse, um, and just, you know, social harmony. And then you've got your junk pile. So what I did was in, well, just to give you a sense of how this works operationally, is like, I said, well, let's figure out what God wants. And I looked at the Ten Commandments and then used this coding scheme. I said, well, each of the Ten Commandments said, well, that's religion. Uh, that's religion. Um, the moral stuff is, you know, liking mom and dad, killing people, committing adultery, theft. Um, coveting your neighbor's stuff might be virtuous because you're not actually stealing it necessarily. You know, just <laughs> sort of a silly way of coding the Ten Commandments. So if you look at this, well, the Abrahamic God is like basically 50% moralistic, which is, I think, is fair. Uh, <laughs> maybe. Um, so we, I did a cross-cultural study, um, which we'll talk a little bit more about uh, in a little bit. Uh, so 591 people from these um, eight different field sites around the world did the same sort of task. You asked people, what do your gods care about? And I asked them about two gods. One is this, the, the kind of god that the field researchers suspected were moralistic, and then ones that we just wanted to know more about that weren't necessarily as concerned with how people treat each other. And the beautiful thing, I'm very happy about this, is that we had independent coders who had no idea what we were doing sort of take these categories and code tens of thousands of data points, these lists from all of these cultures. And we found that the kinds of gods that are been hailed as moralistic actually are. So morality and virtue, the items, the number of sample listing items, morality and virtue are systematically top. So you see, cross-culturally, these moralistic gods really do care about morality and virtue. That's just a proof of concept. So hooray, the method worked. What's DK mean? Don't know. Oh. Yeah. So you get, uh, I no, that's what it means, not I don't know. Um, yeah, so we, we kind of needed that for reasons because, like, the Hadza, who are a foraging society um, in Tanzania, they're hunter-gatherers, you get almost half the half the sample saying, well, this god cares about morality, and half the sample are just like, I, I don't know, um, which is kind of intuitive because if they're a, a small-scale society, chances are this, this is actually influenced by Christian uh, missionaries coming through there. Um, so... Fairly interesting. So this is yeah, a practical way of getting a sense of change there. So a lot of the researchers sort of make this, uh, I've said it in some of my writing too, or like, you know, the Abrahamic God sort of acts like a, a big cosmic Wyatt Earp. Um, sort of like, you know, breaking your house down if you're being a jerk and so on and so forth. Now, the sort of punchline about all of this is that uh, I also I ask people what their gods like, what their gods dislike. I also ask them what cops like and what cops dislike. 
And uh, if you compare the cops with the moralistic cops, they're virtually identical. So, so it was nice to finally see some empirical evidence that the, the Abrahamic God does, at least in people's heads, function like a, a, a cop. So yeah, uh, moralistic gods, about 77% uh, moral, morality and virtue, and cops like morality and virtue. It's funny how like some of the smaller scale societies, you don't interact with cops all the time answered in such ways like so what do cops dislike and they're like long working hours <laughs> that's awesome i don't know how to code it but yeah um and it's true you know they, they answered it far more um intuitively so given all of this um the research on these moralistic gods uh, has been primarily uh, historical in the sense that people use data collected over 100 years ago, um, and it's qualitative, so they, these, these ethnographies, as, as valuable as they might have been, aren't necessarily interested in this question. So again, uh, part of my research here uh, in Vancouver has been to empirically address this question. Well, if it is the case that these moral gods serve as some sort of way to get people to behave, let's actually test this in societies that aren't, you know, UBC undergraduates. You look at most psychological studies, it's um, UBC undergraduates over there. They're like, well, this is a nice general sample. Um, <laughs> thankfully, I don't have to teach, so I really don't know how bizarre they are, but um, I do have to bump into them occasionally when they're on their cell phones. Um, so we decided to conduct this study around the world and to see whether or not we found it. We found the same effects as similar sort of psychological studies have found. To, to test this relationship between moral behavior and conceptions of a moralistic deity. So we did a behavioral experiment, and the way this behavioral experiment works is as follows. Participants, you bring them into your, uh, to the room or wherever you're doing it, and they're sitting in front of a table, and they have 30 coins in front of them and a two-colored die. And the way this rule, the rules of this game are as follows. Uh, you've got two cups in front of you. They're not here in this illustration, but they will, there will be. There are two cups in front of you. And as a participant, you're supposed to think of which cup you would like to put the coin into. Okay, as you're doing that right now, I see. You have to think about which cup you'd like to put a coin into, and then you roll the die. If the die comes up one color, you get to put the coin into the cup that you thought of. If it comes up the opposite color, then you have to put it in the opposite cup, right? So you've got to figure that if there's a cup for yourself, and a cup for some Yahoo that's out somewhere you don't know them. You're going to think about your own cup, probably, because you get to keep that money. And we actually have to pass out all the money that goes into the cups to all these people, right? So chances are you're going to think of your own cup. You roll the die. If it comes up black, you're like, yes, I get to keep that coin. You put it in your cup. If it comes up white, you're like, oh, you got to put it in the cup for the Yahoo. And after 30 coins, the stakes were fairly high uh, uh, cross-culturally. Um, after 30 coins, you could walk out of there conceivably with 30 coins, which is actually a big deal in a lot of places. Um, the sort of catch with this is that no one's around when you're playing this game. We're like, all right, have fun, and then you walk out of the room. So you think about it, you're like, hmm, my cup, black, yes, my cup, white, Yes. <laughs> My cup. Black. Yes. And people can cheat. Now, we can't tell individuals. I mean, 
if you put 30 coins in your own cup, it's so beyond probability that, you know, <laughs> kind of like, yeah, you're cheating. But overall, um, we can test statistically if there's any systematic biases in any given cup, right? So we did this with two different games. One we'll call the local co-religionist game. So people played this game, again, by themselves. And one was someone in their local community who shared their religious convictions. Uh, so just your, your, your in-group, your religious in-group, basically. And then one cup was for someone who lived in a faraway area, an anonymous person who might have shared the same religious traditions, but you never interact with them. So here there's actually incentive to cheat on behalf of your local community, because we do, again, we go out and give people money. So it's fun to like go to these distant areas and go, hi, are you Buddhist? Yes, here's 50 bucks. Like, well, what do you want? Are you a spy? Kind of um, that's, that was really fun to just give out people money. So we had to do this. Um, um, so there is incentive, of course, here to cheat on behalf of your local community, because if you give someone 50 bucks, like you're engaging, you're establishing a relationship, um, and they might owe it to you later, and so on and so forth. So that's um, uh, fairly intuitive. Now we also did sort of what resembles uh, the game I uh, explained this with was people got cups for themselves and then another distant co-religionist person that they never really interact with, okay? Uh, so they played these games, um, just to sort of recap the predictions here, we expected that in this local co-religionist game, people were gonna bias their allocations for their local community. People were like, oh, on behalf of my local community. And we predicted that people, of course, were gonna bias uh, coin allocations for themselves. Um, and so the general prediction that given this, the more people are rate their moralistic gods as punishing and knowledgeable about immoral behavior, that these biases are going to go away. That it, it, if it is the case that religion contributes to people's fairness towards other people, then we should see these biases fall the more likely people claim that their gods uh, punish and no. And it turns out that's exactly what we found. So to give you a sense, here is what people's sort of punishment index was on this measurement, and here's the money that they allocated to various people. This 15, that's a split. So you know, by chance, playing this game, if you actually played by the rules, it'd be a 50-50 split. I mean, there's you know, diminishing probability, of course, but that's the sort of fair line. And you can see, we'd expect that there'd be a positive relationship between allocations, given the more likely people said their gods punish people for immoral behavior. Well, there. Um, and you can see that steady rise. The more moralistic, punitive, and omniscient their deities were, the more likely their allocations were to approximate to a fair distribution. Now again, as a secular person, I'm kind of like, darn. <laughs> And I mean, I've, I've seen the you know the, the the study was published in Nature just uh, about a month ago in, in print. And you can see a lot of the religious literature, both like saying, "Hooray, we knew it all the time," and also saying, "These jerks think they're talking about evolution and all of this." So you can't you can talk about religion just in general. You, you'll never win with anyone because um, everyone's already an expert. Um, but at least in this case, here here it's the case that. We found empirical evidence using uh, living people with all sorts of beliefs from around the world in a non-Western tradition and found that people were systematically more likely to play fairly by the rules uh, if they said that their God cared about morality um, and punished people for breaches of morality. It's 11.30. Oh, okay. 
Cool. Uh, well, just to give you a sense, I'll, I'll whiz through this. Local gods, it leaves the question, like, what about all these local gods? What are they doing? If these moralistic gods are actually affecting the way people behave toward one another, what are all these local gods doing? I talked about three of them earlier, um, but more systematic research is necessary for this. Um, but to give you a sense of uh, where we're going next with this, or where my research is going next with this, is I was interested in, like, when you look at these spirit masters, you start seeing a curious thing, like, these local spirits that have been around since Siberia was populated by humans and replacing the, the Neanderthals that were there. Local spirit, there's evidence that local spirits were worshipped there, and then suddenly you start seeing a pop-up in like alcohol abuse as what these spirits care about. And that alcohol abuse is a serious problem uh, throughout Russia. You also see concerns with littering. They're now part of a market community, a market economy. They're consuming all sorts of disposable consumables, and you see crap everywhere. And so here we have local and relatively new problems sort of emerging and suddenly getting filtered into how people talk about their deities. Um, and it shouldn't be too surprising. There's a, a, a huge movement in uh, the Abrahamic traditions of greening, or at least rebranding Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, because we have very real practical environmental problems facing all of us. Um, and you see the, the Pope Francis now sort of officially associated the Vatican with environmentalism. Um, so here we see, again, religious discourse evolving in order to uh, address very real practical problems that affect us all as individuals and together. So the take-home message uh, with that, I guess I'll leave it at that, is that um, rather than potentially criticizing the beliefs of, of people, which are fairly obviously factually incorrect, um, and maybe oversimplistically uh, over associating beliefs with behaviors, in order to solve the question or solve the problem of people committed to things that are false and potentially disastrous for themselves and their community, we really do have to solve these external problems. Because we, we look at the most secular societies around the world, they're ones that are privileged, wealthy, and have very strong secular institutions that solve all of the social problems that religions used to traditionally without them. Um, so in, in contexts where we have, uh, like Scandinavia, for instance, very secular, uh, least religious societies on the planet have participatory dem democratic systems. They have uh, at all levels of social organization. They have things like healthcare. Again, I'm American, so I'm coming from it from uh, that perspective as well. Um, they treat their people well, and then suddenly religion becomes not only factually or epistemologically irrelevant, but socially and biologically irrelevant as well. Um, again, but gods are cheap, and that's the battle I think that secularists and atheists uh, have before them, is that gods are psychologically salient, and they're much cheaper than actually addressing real problems. So on that, thank you.